John Oakes is the co-founder and publisher of Or Books, a New York-based independent publisher established in 2009. The company sells digital and print-on-demand books directly to customers and focuses on, quote, creative promotion through traditional media and the internet. On their website, it states that Or Books embraces progressive change in politics culture, and the way we do business. It eschews selling through bookstores. John is also the publisher of the Evergreen Review. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you, Nigel. It's an honor to be speaking with you. We are going to be talking about Rosset, My Life in Publishing and How I Fought Censorship. That's Barney's memoir that you published in 2016. So I'll just start with a a brief thumbnail of Barney here. Barney Rossett was the owner of Grove Press. He bought it for $3,000 in 1951. He was also the publisher and editor-in-chief of the magazine Evergreen Review. And you are also the publisher of that currently. Yes, I am. Yeah. He led a successful legal battle to publish the uncensored version of D.H. Lawrence's novel, Lady Chatterley's Lover, and later published Henry Miller's controversial novel, The Tropic of Cancer. The right to publish it was affirmed by the Supreme Court in 1964 in a landmark ruling for free speech and the First Amendment. Okay, so I'm just going to read out a paragraph from the very beginning of Rossett, of his memoir. It's not titled anything. It's not called a foreword or a preface or an introduction. It's just there with a picture of a kind of a grainy picture of Barney with his father. Just to put it in perspective, it it's the uh, notes for an autobiography that he wrote in 2006. And it's to be found at the Rare Books and Manuscripts Library at Columbia University. XX was a fierce competitor, and he's talking about himself here, was a fierce competitor in school, but not for money. I guess that's because his father had a lot of it only for prestige of scholarship, athletics, and above all else, girls. (laughs) This struggle to get girls has been a deep-rooted problem, and he felt rather mistakenly that he could never be successful. This competition for girls was a very subtle thing, taking many forms and also being a very chauvinistic thing in that the girl was basically a prize to be sought after, not an important human being. So that's really interesting that he would start off his memoir with that. Yeah, I think uh, this sense of struggle and competition is integral to understanding Barney Rossett. You know, he... In my opinion, I think he's one of the most significant cultural figures in uh, the United States to to emerge in the post-war period. 
he isn't a sort of a, he's not a peaceful figure by any stretch right. of the imagination. Yeah. He comes out, he starts fighting and he, he ended fighting. And in the middle, he was fighting. And when he wasn't fighting, he was restless and, and, and bouncing around. And Why does he focus on women to start with? Like he, he was married five times. He starts off his memoir basically sort of saying, hey, I, I got laid a lot. He wanted to let you know that, almost like he had had to prove his manhood somehow. That's Thank how he you. begins the book, and he's yeah, yeah. quite a big part of the book. His father had, I, I'm answering the question, but I, I'm obviously not a psychologist, or maybe not obviously, but I'm not one, but I think- Even though you're uh, in Switzerland now. Yeah, I am. I am the land of young and, and, uh, but um, I think uh, Barney came into this world very much overshadowed by his, fa his father, who had made a considerable fortune uh, in Chicago as a banker and had a, a really, I think by our standards, a, what you'd have to call an unloving relationship with him and the father completely overshadowed him financially and i would guess uh that one way he felt he could outshine his father uh i mean this may be going i can just feel the rosset spirit over my shoulder saying oh that's a lot of bullshit john <laughs> but um was uh, just having the succession of of um, conquests and it is true that uh, he he was constantly, but he, he also, this also might have been a, a, um, a side effect of this. He had this uh, vivacity about him. I don't want to overstate this, this animal quality that he had, but it, it, anyone who met him surely uh, would have uh, experienced that. He had a, in, in a sort its mildest form, it's called charisma, but with Barney, it was it was really palpable, and as you and I were just saying a few minutes ago, uh, actually physically he was unimposing. Uh, he was a you know very small man. Now maybe he's trying to prove something too with that. Yeah, and and I think that also extended to his publishing. You know that where limits were set by the government or society, as soon as he he felt or or saw a limit. He wanted to break it. So that tied also into his interest into what he called erotica. And I think the rest of us would call pornography. And he absolutely uh, loved that stuff. He loved to read it or he, uh... he... He loved to read it. Yeah. He loved to read it. He loved to, to put it out into the world. He loved to shock people. Unlike, you know, somebody like, uh, like Hugh Hefner, who I guess was a, a contemporary of his uh, or other people, he, he really didn't end up making a lot of money off of it. He, he made quite a bit of money off it, but then blew it all on uh, tons and tons of lawyers. I believe some bad investments, but mostly it was just regular book publishing, which is not a very profitable business in the mm -hmm. best of times. It's interesting, too, I've noticed, uh, having interviewed quite a number of publishers over the years, uh, it's quite striking how 
proud he is of his time during uh, the war, World War II yeah. in China. Jack McClellan up here in Canada and also Gordon Graham in, in England, they both see that as one of their, the best times of their lives. Absolutely. And in his uh, memoir, in fact, the original version of his memoir, I, you know, we, we cut it drastically. But the original version, I, I don't want to make it up, but I'd say about a third of it was devoted to his time in China, where he was a war photographer. It was, he was, I don't want to say obsessed, but um, it certainly loomed large in his mind. And people are interested in hearing about him now. They want to know about his relationship with Jean Genet or Beckett or Kinsborough Oe or all of these Nobel Prize winners that he published. Right. And UNESCO and, and his first wife, Joan Mitchell, the great uh, abstract expressionist, and so on. But he really wanted to talk about China. Being Barney, he was not, um, he certainly was not a reasonable man. And you couldn't uh, sort of uh, come to a, a resolution. It was really, you did what he wanted or you didn't do it. And so uh, that large measure why it was only after his death that in 2012 that the memoir was published a couple of few years later. I guess we forget, you know, that, that these experiences are very formative and I suppose there's this sense of purpose, there's this uh, camaraderie. But also, if I may be a little bit uh, devil's advocate here, there's a lot, on the one hand, there's a great deal of responsibility. On the other hand, you don't have to worry about uh, rent and, and yeah, putting food on your plate of, or yeah. taking care of a family yeah. or, or how you're going to pay your employees. You know, you're just, you're given a job and, and uh, you basically are going to have the resources to do it. And you stay within those parameters more or less. And in Barney's case, he had a job that really suited his free-ranging personality. He was a photographer mm -hmm. and really took some wonderful uh, pictures, some of which are reproduced in the book. Um, and there were many more we didn't include, but he really had uh, an eye uh, which came out of his compassion for the suffering he saw in, amongst the, the Chinese citizens. And uh, really, I think, uh, some unforgettable images that he came up with. And in fact, he was, I think, going, he was heading in that direction. He was planning to be a, a photographer, to do something in film when he got diverted, thankfully, for the rest of us. Yeah, a, a couple things then. Did, was he trained as a photographer or, or not? It, no, he just went out there and started taking photographs. Yeah. And he had, his father, you know, had plenty of connections and he could have uh, secured a, uh, a stateside commission, as they used to say, but uh, he really wanted to be in the thick of it. But his uh, political commitment was clear from, from the outset, I, even from his high school days. Yeah, his, uh, he was the editor of this, is it Somunist or? Something uh, like that. Yeah, Somunist yeah. and Socialism. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> The uh, army had uh, dossiers on his clearly uh, socialist lean, or at the time communist leanings, and you know, that again could be seen as um, 
certainly would go against his ultra-capitalist father. But, you know, whatever the roots of that, the end result was this extraordinary flawed, as we all are, but, but uh, individual, but, but somebody who was driven by a desire for radical change, both in culture and in politics. And mm. I think if you look at the really extraordinary list of enduring titles that he published from, uh, I think they started publishing in 1952, mm -hmm. 53, on right up until the end when he got kicked out by the Gettys. And I think that was 1985. You see that the politics is sort of in the background. He published Franz Fanon. He published the autobiography of Malcolm X. But that wasn't really at the forefront of what he was doing. What was really driving him and Grove Press was the cultural stuff. And yes, the erotica, as he liked to call it, you know, this, some of this awful, awful stuff, in my opinion. <laughs> and he'd get really angry if you mistakenly called, as I did, call it pornography in front of him. He, you know, he'd get furious. But really, it's, you know, the people we've mentioned like Beckett and Genet, but also Marguerite Duras and um, Amos Tutuola, you know, the palm wine drinker, and uh, just really books that, I, I just think some of the most extraordinary books from that period, from the mm. 60s and 70s. He, he, made, made, he uh, never published Nabokov, but I'm, you know, I'm just thinking who, who else did he miss from that time? He did a lot of Latin American stuff too, although I don't. Right, Octavio Paz, Juan yeah. Rulfo, uh, mm. a wonderful, uh, underappreciated writer. Um, he didn't do uh, as much Spanish uh, as he, you know, as much from outside Mexico as as uh, one might have wished. Yeah. But uh, Paz, of course, so many. He really did bring in the the the, the whole world to the United States and. I mean, the United States, in terms of, you know, the taste of their readers, they've, you know, that's not about the U.S. They're very reluctant to read about it. At least. <laughs> I hate to hear you say that, Nigel. Well, that but... might be a cliche and it might be wrong or a stereotype. <laughs> well, it's a joke among, at least a joke among independent publishers that, you know, yeah. if you really want to work to not, to get your book not sold in the United States, all you got to do is put on the cover, translated by, and then you know, sales go. But of course, there are serious exceptions to that rule. I mean, even in the benighted United States that I love, Name of the Rose was a huge bestseller, if not number one. And, you know, there are plenty of others. And, well, especially these days. Not well, so many others. <laughs> Sorry? Yeah. I mean, there's Canals Guard and Ferrante yeah. right now yeah. that, you know, I mean, I guess they they ride one horse, you know, and uh, and ride that to the end. But what you say is absolutely correct. I think uh, Barney, if not the pioneer, was certainly among the very first pioneers to push uh, works in translation. I mean, you have James Laughlin at New Directions, starting a little before Barney, but also... Um, also from uh, a rich family. Yeah, you, know, you bet guided by Ezra Pound. Uh, I mean, because he's, he started considerably earlier. Um, mm. But in terms of really reaching a mass audience, which I think Barney was keen to do, and I remember him telling me, you know, he wasn't in it, he, he wasn't so concerned with um, the idea of 
In fact, he disliked the idea of a precious small press, you know, a letter press. That wasn't his thing at all. He wanted to have paperbacks printed on cheap paper that were very reasonably priced. And he wanted to reach a lot of people. He, you know, he, he wanted Samuel Beckett to be sold everywhere. And of course it was many, many, many years. Um, Beckett was one of his first authors. I think Mm -hmm. in fact, I think it was his first year of, of running uh, when he bought Grove, which had just up to that point done some reprints, two or three uh, uh, reprints uh, from 19th and 18th centuries. Yeah. One of his first- Melville. I think he did Melville. Uh, Might have been, there was, uh, there was something called The Monk. Yeah. Oh, and, and then he did um, uh, Henry James, The Golden Bull. But mm. then right after that, uh, one of the very first uh, contracts was with Beckett. Yeah, actually, that's quite interesting because uh, I saw an interview with Dick Seaver, an important editor with Grove for many oh, years. He was essential. According to his wife, <laughs> it was Dick who really discovered Beckett and apparently went to the very first performance of Waiting for Godot and, and went to it a lot of times. But he doesn't show up at all in uh, Barney's rendition of the story of how he uh, came across Beckett. So, oh, I, I wonder if, if uh, Jeanette Seaver would argue that, uh, uh, first of all, I think it's, it's tricky to say who discovers an author. I mean, if Beckett were with us right now, he might wryly comment that <laughs> he felt he was in the process of being discovered to his dying day. But if you mean who came first, I mean, Richard Seaver, who is a, a, a very ta- a brilliant editor and translator, published Beckett in, I think, Merlin. That's was a magazine, a, right? Right, a magazine in yeah. France, an English language magazine. Yeah. And then also worked with him in something called Transition. So, you know, uh, Seaver may well have known and uh, worked with Beckett in fact, must have known and worked with Beckett before Barney. But I also think, just for the record, since you bring it up, that Barney independently, I mean, before he even knew of of who Richard Seaver was, he had been introduced to Beckett by Sylvia Beach. You, uh, I'm sure somebody like you knows exactly who that person was. She was the first publisher of Ulysses and ran Shakespeare and Co., which I believe to this day still exists. I remember seeing that store, I'm embarrassed to tell you, about 40 years ago. And even then it was, you know, this incredible repository. You just walked in and felt it was this repository of literary history. It was an amazing place. And I I hope it thrives to this day. I think it is because they put a nice big cafe right and they bought it finally. Good. But That's anyway, so you but, were but saying- she she was in touch with Barney, and this right after he had bought Grove from, which was this tiny company, as they say, that had done two or three titles. I think in the memoir, uh, unless I, I, I'm mistaken, we reproduced her letter to Barney, and then he got in touch with her, and they had a meeting, and she said, "Listen, there's this crazy Irishman that you have to hear about." And, the, and then they had this correspondence, which, which grew. That's in no way to diminish 
the importance of Richard Siever as a translator and, and a skilled editor, but it is simply, I believe, inaccurate to say that he was the one who brought Beckett to Grove Press. Okay, so 1951, he, he bought the, the company with his, with his father's money, we should add. And uh, it wasn't until about 1960 or 61 that he decided to, well, what? Push for the publication of the uncensored version of Lady Chatterley's Lover. So why, I wonder why that is. It, it was a definite campaign on his part, wasn't it? Well, if you look even earlier, there's a, a few important dates that come before that. 1957, he starts up the Evergreen Review, and he does that at the time he saw it, and I think he was correct, as a very good marketing move, as a way to promote Grove Press, primarily to promote Grove Press authors. And in fact, I have a copy of, I have a copy of uh, the number two Oh, that's fantastic. Look yeah. at that. This is from 1957. This is number two. He's listed as one of the editors. I think that's an important thing. Barney considered himself, at least at the beginning of Grove, as not just a publisher, an editor. You know, some of the names in this issue are Kenneth Rexroth, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, Henry Miller, Michael McClure, Gary Snyder, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg. Yeah. Dory Ashton, I think one thing you and I might immediately notice is the paucity of uh, names that are not white men. But, but this, I, I should come back to your point about what made him drawn to uh, Lady Chatterley's Lover. But I, I think if you look at the evolution of Grove from really from the beginning, he's interested in works, in books that challenge uh, precepts and and uh, exp really push our, our limits. Mm -hmm. And he certainly had that in Lady Chatterley's Lover. He had it in Miller. He had it also in Beckett. You know, just about every one of the authors that uh, I think were part of Grove's core, uh, that, that's true. There's not one that's sort of commercially typical. And I think that's one of the reasons why Barney ended up basically without a penny to his name. But I don't know if I answered your point about the the D.H. Lawrence. Well, I was going to say, we kind of forget how subversive it was to sort of tell the truth and, and risk jail time like like he did with with Chatterley and Naked. I thank you for mentioning that. People yeah. forget that in those days, publishers were actually thrown in jail for publishing what were, were called dirty books. Yeah, so... He took a huge risk, not just financially, but also uh, risked his life in a way. Yeah, I think that's very true. What, what drew you to him, actually? Why did you, because the memoir has been out now for a little while, what made you come upon him and decide that he was a figure you wanted to <laughs> explore? Well, okay. I mean, I've got this big grand uh, mission to interview people about best practitioners in the publishing world in all sorts of different roles. So I'm just ticking off an important uh, character here, basically. Uh, I've got a collection of about four or 500 publishers' histories and uh, memoirs and, and uh, that sort of thing. So, uh, Well, I'm, I'm very glad you uh, hit upon Barney because I'm always 
frustrated when, for example, in the, you know, there's a, a otherwise wonderful book, Merchants of Culture, which yeah. I don't think mentions. Thompson, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which doesn't even mention Grove Press or Barney Rossett, which is, you know, it's, it's just, he's certainly someone who can be criticized as I'm trying to do <laughs> respectfully yes. yeah. with you. But, um, not to acknowledge how he really reshaped American publishing is mm -hmm. a, a colossal uh, omission. It would be like, I think, in some ways, you know, trying to talk about 20th century painting and, and missing Picasso. But to go back to Lady Chatterley's lover, I think he also strategically chose that because he knew there was a literary backing for Lawrence and later with Miller too, that these could be seen as dirty books because they certainly have explicit scenes in them uh, and, and their authors' sexual obsessions become evident or, or their protagonists in the, in the books do. But Barney also was very aware uh, that he would be taken to court and in fact, uh, I was it with Lady Chatterley's Lover. I think it was actually with Tropic of Cancer. The U.S. Postmaster General took him to court for sending pornography through the mails in every single state in the Union. So Barney had to separately. So Barney at the time had to uh, defend Grove Press or you know concede the point. And being Barney, he was going to fight to the end. Um, had to to uh, defend the case in every every single state in the union. Which is a good thing for him if he wins, because then, then he doesn't have to go fight state by state. Yeah, I can't remember how many court cases he ended up going through, but they were basically in court constantly. And, and as he says in his memoir somewhere, he enriched an entire generation of lawyers. He fired London, right, early on. He, he found... Uh... Cy Rembar, who actually was Norman Mailer's cousin. Well, one of the things that's interesting, just getting back to when he, when he started up, is that in the, in the early 50s, it's been called, let's see here, yes, the last great moment of reading and writing by a mass constituency. The paperback revolution kicked off in the 30s, and... That combined with com consumer affluence and faith in the word, do you, would you say all of that sort of contributed to his success, his early success? I think that uh, certainly, and I think also his rise and also coincidentally uh, his fall is in step with the rise of the baby boom generation. There's a whole bunch of kids coming of age who are coming out of the, the war period. You know, there's this uh, generation that's growing up in the late 50s, early 60s. They were getting frustrated just as the current generation is right now getting frustrated with current prejudices and, and dunderheadedness, for want of a better word. And I think the 60s generation uh, was looking around as, as and, and then also there were a whole, a whole series of things that, you know, Vietnam War showed, I think, in, in, in ways that would be very hard to miss the perfidy of, 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 of the U.S. government 
and and the its its murderous consequences in many ways that the police brutality is I mean you can draw some parallels between then and now you can in fact one thing that jumped out at me you you referenced his interest in film early on yeah and he did make a film and it was about racism in the United right. States and that was yeah. again that was in the late 40s yeah I actually am embarrassed to tell you Nigel I haven't seen the film but I, it was about a black serviceman who comes back he's a decorated serviceman who comes back to the states and then the racism that he encounters there it was uh, well received. It was uh, he did it with Haskell Wexler, somebody who was very close to for uh, the rest of uh, his life. But for whatever reason, I you know making a film is a pretty involved process. Um, I'm not sure why, but I, as I say, I'm very thankful that he did decide to turn to book publishing. I mean, I know how he came into book publishing is because a friend of uh, Joan Mitchell, his first wife, Joan wanted him to get involved in something. And she said, why don't you, you know, take up publishing? And he sort of looked at this tiny company Grove that was for sale and, and then bought it. But he remained fascinated by film for decades. And in fact, at some point he owned a theater. He brought over to the States a whole bunch of films he made a lot of money with I Am Curious Yellow, right? Yes, with I Am Curious Yellow, they, they had a big hit. But some of the other ones, like uh, last year at Marion Bod, and then uh, <laughs> he was going to do something. Oh, he did, he did make a film with Beckett called Film, but these were what we would call art films. They were yeah. not destined. They could not conceivably be for a wider audience. They were for a you know, tiny number of, of viewers. But uh, I am curious, Yellow, that's correct. That was a huge success for him. But again, you know, his spirit is, I can hear his spirit raging at me as I'm about to say this. But I think that when he was on the brink of financial success, he, he, just, he just did not want to do that. And he just mm -hmm. turned away from that. If he had a lot of money, he wanted to spend it. He mm -hmm. didn't wanted to grow. He was not interested. In fact, he was very much against becoming, I think, uh, financially successful. Mm. And he certainly succeeded in that. <laughs> As I say, you know, at the end of his life, you know, he, he couldn't even pay the rent. Yeah, that's, that's sad. But it was also, I think, a conscious decision. And yes. Yeah. Well, it's very anti-capitalist, isn't it? Yes. Yes. But I mean, he had many, many successes in other areas and ways, but yeah. financially, uh, uh, that wasn't one of them. In fact, Grove, uh, at least according to Grove's financial figures, which uh, we got out of the Columbia archives, they were making money until about 1970, 71, at which point they lost a ton uh, that was also, you know, the beginning of the, well, not the beginning, but it was when the feminist revolution really started to get going. And Barney totally missed out on that. I do want to get to that. I just want to touch it, uh, a, bit, a bit more on his fight against censorship. I guess the, uh, the big question in the courts was, uh, is obscenity uh, an exception to... Uh, to the First Amendment. And uh, 
there's a famous sort of standard definition, and that is whether the average person applying contemporary community standards and is the dominant theme of the material taken as a whole, does that appeal to the prurient interest? And so the big question is, so what's prurient? And Barney, which I think undoubtedly his lawyers probably tried to keep him as much as possible from saying anything, his feeling, and in this I, I would certainly, I think most of us would agree with him now, is, you know, even if it is prurient, why not? You know, if people yeah. get a kick out of it, if it's not hurting anyone, you know, more power to them if that's their thing. I personally would not want to publish that stuff so much, but, you know, why not? Well, in fact, I guess the, the approach with the lawyers was that if you could prove the social importance of the work, uh, you wouldn't be accused of obscenity. And so their ploy was to get as many, quote, experts as they could to talk about the importance of the work and its, and its literary uh, value, to sort of talk sure. about it being a classic, a modern classic. And I, I was just looking at not as attractive as that early evergreen review there, but this is Alan Lane's special little private printing mm -hmm. of his fight for Lady Chatterley uh, right at the same time in England. He was a great publisher. The Penguin books in the, in the mid thirties where, I mean, it wasn't his idea, but boy, he knew how to capitalize on it. But I'm just looking through the list of all sorts of people that, <laughs> that he called in as witnesses. Helen Gardner, Rebecca West, uh, Richard Hoggart, E.M. Forster, Sir Stanley Unwin. Who did um, Barney's lawyers call in? You know, I just don't remember. I'm sorry. Uh, Don Allen was certainly, uh, who was, whom he met at the Columbia Publishing course, was a uh, academic who advised him for years and may well have been one of those uh, he brought in, but I just, I just don't remember. I know, I know Albert yeah. Dean was one of them. Okay, so he starts off his foreword with a good line. He says, some people think my chief claim to fame is having published the first book to be sold over the counter in this country with the word fuck printed on its pages in all of its naked glory. It was a major victory against ignorance and censorship. So uh, that's obviously his greatest achievement. I don't know about that. He has so many great achievements uh, I think for me, and, and in fact, that's how I got to know him, uh, was through Beckett. I think uh, publishing and championing Beckett was, and sticking with Beckett, because, yeah. you know, you, now you mention the word Beckett and, and, you know, the cultural world, you can't conceive of it without a Beckett, right? Beckett says, I think, arguably up there with Shakespeare and maybe yep. a couple of others. But when Barney 
got into contact with this guy in, in 52, Beckett was, he was completely unknown. He was an acolyte of, of James Joyce. Um, at that point, he's probably well into his 40s. Uh, he's not sort of a promising young writer. Right. He's an eccentric, very hard to understand. He took a risk, didn't he? He took a huge risk, I guess. Is that it? it, it, it I think it, you could, whatever the word is that would go beyond risk. It was, it go, fits in with my impression that Barney, if he could, he would, he would go against the winds of financial success. To publish Beckett in 1950, to get excited about Beckett and to make a long-term commitment to this guy, it was a recipe for financial disaster. And um, you can justify it by, uh, at the time, saying, you know, I just think he's just an incredible artist and writer. But from a publishing standpoint, <laughs> this was not something that um, Alfred Knopf was going to take on at the time, or, you know, Mr. Schuster of Simon & Schuster. I guess that's a long way of saying that I think his greatest achievement was specifically to search out Beckett and to stick with him and, and to build him. Barney very consciously uh, built up Beckett. Long before I think other publishers were doing this, he uh, created a study guide and mailed out a some vast number of, of study guides to high school teachers mm-hmm. around the country. And this was a par- part of a, a, a very concerted marketing campaign and did that for Waiting for Godot. And I don't know if he did it for other books, but this, you know, this takes a tremendous commitment. And meantime, people like very real solid literary critics like John Updike, uh, who um, I, ha- I have a terrible memory, but I happen to remember Updike wrote of Beckett very early on that Beckett was, quote, a plastic job for the intellectual fruit bowl, <laughs> which is a great phrase, but I think uh, you'd be hard pressed to find a, a, a person who was even glancingly familiar with Beckett today who would say that not just ridiculous. But, but Barney was, it is true that Barney was always obsessed with obscenity and censorship and, mm-hmm. uh, and did some great things there, but I, I don't know if that was his greatest achievement. Well, it's lucky that he had the financial backing of his father to be able to take this kind of risk, you know. I suppose that's one thing that enabled him to do it. I mean, he got most of his money around 57. I think his dad died in 57 or thereabouts. And before then, he had to basically, according to his memoirs, uh, crawl on his belly to get. But I mean, his father probably would have said with some, maybe some justification, you know, geez, why don't you go get a job? Why are you always sponging off me? I think Barney also saw it as an opportunity to come into conflict with his father, that it wasn't something that he dreaded it's something that he he wanted and maybe a freudian would say that that was an engine that powered him throughout his career yeah he's very combative he really liked to fight it seems yeah. any kind of fight yes that's absolutely correct but it took somebody like that to go up against the u.s government and even in some ways you know they're several different kinds of censorship. So there's censorship, there was censorship about sex, but then also in some ways you 
I think, could very well argue that uh, this modernist writing of which Beckett is, you know, the greatest example. There's commercial censorship. You know, who the hell wants to read this guy? So he went up against that too. That also takes a lot of fight and, and he has to be recognized for that. What about a couple of other publishers? Uh, Maurice Drody, could you talk a bit about him? He and Barney had a uh, uh, long and <laughs> combative relationship I never knew uh, Gerodius, but I gather that he also, he's a very interesting figure in his, his own right. Uh, I don't know if you ever got a hold of a copy. His, his memoir came out in two volumes, I think, The Frog Prince, and I've only read one. Are you going to show me? Uh, there it is. Look at that. And he has a, he has a, a absolutely essential place in, in modern literature as well, but uh, he also was committed to publishing erotica. Olympia Press, of course. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that he had, uh, you know, Barney's reputation went up and down. I think Maurice's, he was sort of famously, uh, I, I don't want to slander the poor guy, but he, he was famously uh, seen as a, a scoundrel uh, of, of publishing, you know, never paid his authors. He exploited them, yeah. Yeah, but but really extraordinary. He um, he really uh, he did some amazing things too. He uh, uh, published something called I think it was the Bread of Despair or something like that when he was in France. The Pan did whatever that really attacking Andre Gide, who uh, or maybe it was I'm sorry, it might have been Malraux, who was the Minister of Culture at the time. Yeah. So he was. I think a lesser version of, of Barney in France. And then he ended up coming to the States, you know, where he tried to set up a publishing outfit and did something outrageous, some pornographic uh, satire involving Kissinger and Nixon. Uh, I think he was thrown out of the States uh, because of that, which uh, might've been, um, facilitated because of his expired visa. But, you know, he was also a combative uh, sort. I, I think Barney and he had some uh, murky dealings. And for example, Barney reprinted the Olympia Reader here. And I think Maurice, you know, argued that Barney didn't pay him. And who knows what the, the truth is behind that. Yeah, I think Gerodius didn't really do a great job protecting copyright, you know, for his own copyright. That's right. At the time, I think copyright was that if something were published in English on the continent, then it was not covered by U.S. copyright law. So okay. um, yeah. uh, technically, Barney didn't have to pay him anything and paid him probably a little something, but Maurice undoubtedly felt it wasn't fair and he may have had a point. Well, yeah, I mean, basically, uh, Barney cannibalized the Olympia list, really. I'm sure that's true. What about John Calder? Calder uh, was someone whom I uh, had some dealings with and uh, great affection for. He was a remarkable publisher, as, as I'm sure you know, at least when he was in the States, Again, you know, the scion of, uh, I guess, a, a, a distinguished family. But in the States, when he would come and peddle his wares, he would get a station wagon. And 
he would drive around the country and go from bookstore to bookstore selling his, his uh, books. But uh, he was somebody I think might have been the first to publish Beckett in the UK. Yeah, yeah, that's his claim to fame, I think. I, I don't think it's his only one. He, he published many other uh, interesting authors. I'm sure a whole bunch of, of which are on the Grove list. Yeah. And like Barney, he ended up not exactly uh, with, a, with a large bank account. <laughs> they, these, these guys started, they, they did a great job in, in, in living up to the adage that the way you end up with a small fortune in publishing is you start with a big one. But in yeah. their cases, they, they uh, yeah. ended up with nothing. Well, and so what happened then with Barney is, is what feminism really, it was a kind of a backlash, I think, that got him. I think that's true. It, that was part of it. And part of it was it just came up against his, this personality that did not know the meaning of the word compromise or flexible in yeah. any way, shape or form. And he saw it probably as another attack a personal attack, which in some ways it was uh, on him. Uh, you know, his, the offices were occupied and he saw it probably as another, uh, and I think he might even have said this at some point that it was a, you know, CIA or FBI instigated plot in the same way they went after, which they really did go after the Black Panthers, as we know. I don't think so. I think it was, he, you know, really to the end of his days didn't treat women fairly right up front doesn't he talks about them as being objects you know he, i mean he admits that right up front in his memoir yeah and the the very few women whom he uh, i think he really adored joan mitchell but she walked away from him yeah it's it's not so clear i think uh, in the book but historically i think that is the case she was the one who said this is not going to last, and and he he always uh, spoke about her. Well, again, but, he spends a lot of time on this high school sweetheart uh, yeah. Nancy, yeah. who Haskell Wexler ends up marrying. Right. So he loses out on her too, and and he was completely gaga over her. That's right. For yeah. years. Yeah. So the the ones that got away, the ones that spurn him, are are the ones that. Uh, Really, he he's sort of stays in love with. Yeah, you talk about the occupation of the the uh, offices, and someone called Robin Morgan uh, mm -hmm. tries, tries to organize or unionize. She later, I think, became uh, one of the first publishers of Ms. Magazine. Uh, you know, she wasn't just I don't know rabble rouser, but she no. these, you know these were people who really deserved to be heard and um, I think correctly felt they weren't. And, and Barney made a, a big error in not working with his staff. I think that was the turning point for Grove and it started a period of a long, long decline, which mm. ate up. It, Grove had made money, you know, for a number of years, which even in those days for a publishing house was not to be assumed at all. But that was the beginning of a long decline, which ended up, as I say, in the mid-80s uh, with its basic collapse and uh, him 
selling out to the to the Gettys, who he wrongly felt, you know, they wanted the company, so they wanted him. But I was there, and they got rid of him pretty quickly. Where was, did Weidenfeld uh, fit in? Because uh, he was he didn't he buy it or? <laughs> I'm not a fan, Lord. The, the, his lordship. <laughs> Uh, I like his autobi. I like his memoir. It's pretty. Well, I haven't read his memoirs, but I I knew him a bit. Uh, he had fallen in with Ann Getty, and Ann Getty unaccountably was uh, really, I think, uh, awestruck by him. I guess he he talked a good game, and he convinced her that what uh, she needed to do was to buy Grove Press. And then he convinced Barney that, look, you got to come in on this thing with me. And these people are perfect. We'll buy the company. We'll leave you alone. And, and everything will be just hunky-dory. And Barney, I don't want to say he fell for it, but he jumped at it because <laughs> he had a pretty strong ego. And he thought, they want. of course, I'm going to stay on. He was a wild, wild guy, even late in his life. And, you know, starting the day with a rum and coke and, and the Gettys and their financial advisors, who included, I think, a former secretary uh, uh, of the Treasury, of the United States Treasury. This was a little bit more than they bargained for. And they got rid of Barney pretty damn quick. Did Weidenfeld stab him in the back? I don't know if that's fair to say, but uh, Weidenfeld wasn't too worried about Barney. Weidenfeld then brought his operation to the States and in short order, they were losing millions and millions of dollars. They had very fancy offices in the HarperCollins building and they were losing a lot of money, a lot more money, I will say, than Barney ever lost. I, as I say, I was there at the time. I made the transition to the new Grove and stayed on for a little while before I, I, I this was not the sort of publishing that I was interested in and I left. Why wasn't it what you were interested in? Um, my introduction to publishing was Barney's Grove Press, which was this maybe outdated model of a independent publisher. You know, in Greenwich Village, she was on Houston Street at, at the time. And I thought that was great. And, you know, the struggle and the fighting uh, was really exciting. And I just didn't want to work for a big company in Midtown with, you know, board meetings and stuff. Profit and loss statements and... Well, in the case of Grove under Weidenfeld, uh, it was all loss. It was a huge... I mean, they lost vast amounts of money. And they did that because what? They published the wrong stuff, obviously. Oh, I don't... Well, I mean, you could say that, yeah, if they'd published bestsellers, they would have been making money. But the, uh, they brought in Harry Evans, who's, you know, brilliant, wonderful editor and publisher... They gave him a, a an office the size of a football a newspaper. field. He was yes. a newspaper guy. Yeah, but that's not necessarily a bad idea. You know, he, a lot of connections. But as I say, they gave him an office the size of a football field or maybe half a football. It was the biggest office I've ever I'd ever seen. You know, huge in in fifty third on fifty third Street in Midtown Manhattan. This is a, supposed to be a literary book publisher. He can't do that. Very uh, lavish parties and cute big contracts they lost you know that was recipe for disaster and then they ended up 
Eventually, where it still is, Grove ended up in the very capable hands of Morgan Entrican, a very different publisher from Barney, but uh, really a very good one. Someone, I think, who has a much better handle on the business side of things. Was Barney a good businessman? <laughs> That's a cruel question, Nigel. <laughs> If a businessman is someone who's supposed to make a lot of money, evidently he wasn't, right? But he managed to hold together this operation through, you know, several decades. I mean... He knew how to find talent, right? That is well put. I, I mean, Richard Seaver was one of the, the earliest people who, whom he worked with, but many other great editors... I, I mean, for example, Herman Graff became Carol Graff and Kent Carroll, who uh, brought, uh, I mean, Confederacy of Dunces had been published by uh, Louisiana mm -hmm. University Press or LSU Press, something like that. It was the paperback version that Grove uh, got. You know, they, they introduced it to, a, he recognized it for, Kent would, it still is a, a, a brilliant uh, editor and, and publisher. Don Allen, who, who brought in some of the Asian writers. Yeah, and a number of other, uh, of other people. Just finally, one of the most disturbing things these days is how ubiquitous porn is on the internet. And, uh, you know, if I had a, a young son entering his teens, I'd be, I'd be pretty uptight about it the message he gets about women as objects. Speaking as a father of, of three young people who have recently escaped teenagerdom, I, I, they, they went through a period that's unimaginable to you and me. Uh, all you do is turn on your computer, poof! And, and just looking, even leaving personal connections aside, just looking at the young people I see in the streets, uh, you know, who are really leading these protests, they seem pretty damn intellectually healthy to me. I think Barney was right about that. Uh, that's not what's going to hurt or pervert our youth. What's much more likely to do so is, you know, the, these, these nutty notions of, of nationalism and, and intolerance of if you want to dress a certain way, if you have a different sexual preference, there's something wrong with you. I, or if your skin color is a certain shade, then you're really destined to be this or that. I mean, that's much, much more pernicious than, than seeing nude pictures of ourselves. It's funny when I was thinking about it, I, I was reminded of the fact that when I was a teenager, I was a really huge fan of my secret life frank o'hara right no no it's by a, an anonymous victorian gentleman about his sexual practices and i read that back and forth so often because you know i wouldn't have read it if i suppose if i was growing up in these days i had to bear the burden of of uh, for a short period, I had to oversee what was left of, of Grove's line of Victorian erotica, which, by the way, were real Victorian 
books that Barney had found somewhere. Uh, the story I remember he told me, and maybe it's in the book, is that he was passing a construction site in Greenwich Village, and these books were being thrown out, and he took up armloads of these, these, this Victorian trash, and then he got hooked. But one a actual title I remember, and they were just you know awful books. Was I, I don't know about my secret life, but was ravished on a railway, which you know I mean this you know this stuff was awful. I, I personally I'm very glad the culture has graduated from that to you know whatever it is, porn tube or something you know. Well, the book is Barney Rossett's its memoir. It's called Rossett, My Life in Publishing and How I Fought Censorship. It's published by Orr Books. And I've been talking with John Oakes about this great, controversial, driven publisher. Thanks so much for your time. Nigel, thank you very much for having me on. Appreciate it.